Let's take a moment and pray together before we look at God's Word. Our Father, we thank you that we are able to meet together this morning in peace. Thank you that we're able to meet together as your people in freedom. Father, we thank you for the blessings that we enjoy because of where we live and the time in which we live. Father, we pray that you would use our time of worship this morning to strengthen your church, strengthen your people. Father, we ask that you would use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to work in each one of our hearts this morning. Father, minister comfort where comfort is needed. Minister conviction where conviction is needed. Father, in all of it, help us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our great Savior, our great God and King. Help us to look to him this morning because he alone is worthy of our praise. Father, we ask in his perfect name. Amen. As a lifelong New Englander, I have grown to have a a love-hate relationship with the snow. Now, where's Diane Scott? (laughs) She's not here. Diane loves the snow, um, and unfortunately, I don't share that passion with her. Uh, When I was a child, a, a young child, I used to love the privilege of being able to go outside and shovel uh, I'm, I'm told, I don't remember all the details exactly, but I'm told that at one point I actually uh, broke down in a fit of tears because I wasn't going to be able to shovel the snow. And I actually went out and I took my little junior shovel and I just stuck it in there and I moved some of it and I was all happy. Now everything was right with the world because I got to shovel. As I got a little bit older, uh, you had opportunities to run around outside, uh, throw snowballs at my brother. He threw snowballs at me. We built snow forts. It was great. We loved the snow. And then uh, I got a little bit older, just a little bit older. And then it was like, okay, I got to shovel this whole driveway? Like it was just, it was an unbearable feat to accomplish. And I can remember spending hours upon hours shoveling out a driveway and coming inside utterly exhausted. And that's kind of what sealed my fate with this hate relationship with snow. And then ultimately, as I became a, a homeowner, and having the responsibility of having to clear out not just my driveway, got to clear out that, the fire hydrant area, got to clear out the front walk. Man, it was just, I don't like this anymore. It's not so much fun. So, one year ago, I decided to take the plunge and I bought myself a snowblower. <laughs> now, those of you who were here a few Wednesdays ago know where this is going, so don't tell your neighbors yet. I had my snowblower. I loved my snowblower. It was so great. The first year, I remember going out there, and what used to take me like hour and a half, two hours to do, like 45 minutes, I would just blast through it, and I'm just chugging along, got my snowblower, everything is down to the pavement, it was wonderful, loved it. I remember uh, that, actually, that winter, we had snow all the way in April, so like the Red Sox are playing, and I'm out there doing my driveway, plowing the snow, and thinking to myself, but you know what, it's okay, because I got my snowblower, and I'm happy. So this year, (laughs) oh, this year. First big storm went to happen. I said, all right, let me just see if I can fire up the snowblower, see how things are going with that. Pull on the cord. It's not happening. All right, it's been sitting idle for a while, so let me just, you know. All right, it's not working. All right, I've got the electronic ignition, so I plug it in, push the button, nothing. This thing is not moving anywhere. So I go out, I bought some additive to to throw in the gas. There's plenty of oil, there's plenty of gas. Things are good. It's got everything it needs. But this thing is not working. So I had to go out with my trusty shovel once again and shovel my driveway. Feel bad for me. 
Thank you. Thank you. But this thing, this beautiful piece of machinery that I had invested a fairly decent chunk of change in, this lovely machine, it's in pristine condition, only been used like four or five times, is now sitting in my garage taking up precious space that could be occupied by something else, like children's toys or something like that. But it's literally just sitting there, and it's almost mocking me, really, because you walk by and it's like it's sitting there and it looks like it should be able to do something, but it can't. It's utterly useless to me. It is not doing what it was intended to do. It's just sitting there, not fulfilling its purpose. Now, it's a little bit of a stretch, but work with me on this one. When we think of ourselves as believers, you think of our spiritual lives, it is entirely possible for us to be in a place where we are not useful to the master who bought us. It's possible for us to be in that place where we are not useful. Much like that snowblower that's sitting there, utterly useless, we too can be in that place. None of us wants this. We'd all like to see ourselves being used by the king in his service. We want to see ourselves be used by the Lord. We want to see our lives matter, make a difference. We want this. And yet it's possible for that to happen where we just come to a place where we're not useful to the master. When we come to the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 2, we want to see that Paul is giving very practical instructions for how Timothy is to continue his ministry in Ephesus. There are challenges here, and Paul doesn't want to see Timothy get derailed. He doesn't want to see him become useless. He wants him to continue to be useful to the master who bought him. And and specifically, in the second half of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to see Paul outlines four practices for Timothy to follow in order to continue being a useful servant of God. And, And so by extension, we're going to be able to apply those same practices to us as well. So let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. We're going to read down to verse 26. We've already read this responsively, but we want to keep this fresh in our minds. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 14. God's Word says, Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we want to see here four practices of a useful servant of God. And the first practice that Paul commends to Timothy is that a useful servant avoids unprofitable speech. A useful servant avoids unprofitable speech. Over the course of these 13 verses, Paul gives three descriptions of speech that's not profitable. The first of which we see in verse 14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So first, just to kind of set the stage for us here, he says, remind them of these things. So the them is referring back most likely uh, to what we see back in verse 2, where Timothy is charged with passing along what he has been told by Paul in the presence of many witnesses to faithful men who are going to be able to teach others also. So he says, remind them of these things. And the these things is really everything up until verse 14. But then he says, charge them, charge these men that you're committing the word to, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. And that phrase, quarrel about words, it's literally one word in the Greek, and it means a word fight, a word fight. It's as though you have just this nitpicky, I'm going to just pick apart every little structure of every little sentence that comes out of your mouth, and I'm just going to break it apart, and I'm going to squabble over it. In the church at Ephesus, Timothy is dealing with some false teachers. There are false teachers that are present. And Paul's actually written about them already in 1 Timothy, and he reiterates it in 2 Timothy. If you can turn back, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We just want to learn a little bit about these false teachers, and then we're going to come right back to 2 Timothy. We're going to be bouncing back and forth between the two this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we want to look at verse 3. Paul writes, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he gives just a little bit of a flavor of what these false teachers are about. They're teaching different doctrine in verse 3, and they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, that this pursuit of saying, okay, well, I know that so-and-so begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so. Let's go back 20 generations. Oh, but this person actually begot this person. And there's quarreling about these, these genealogies. And Paul says, these are just endless. This is going to go on forever. And he says, these things just promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. So he says, Back in 2 Timothy, he says, charge them before God. This is a solemn charge not to quarrel about words. Don't engage in these word fights. Don't engage with these folks with these bitter contentions over words, just mere words. He says it does no good in verse 14. It does no good, but it ruins the hearers. And that word ruins is literally our English word catastrophe. It creates a catastrophe for the hearers. It's actually the same word that's used in 2 Peter chapter 2 to talk about God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, that they they were laid ruined. There was an utter catastrophe. They were utterly destroyed. And Paul says this is what's happening to the people that hear these quarrels about words, these word fights. So he says don't, don't engage in these word fights with these false teachers. 
But we could say, Paul, but aren't we supposed to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? We read about that in Jude verse 3, right? We're supposed to contend for the faith. Yes, but at the same time, there's also the need for wisdom to understand the truth of Proverbs 26.4, which says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. There's a sense in which Paul's saying, look, don't dignify these false teachers by engaging with them on their level, getting pulled down all of their rabbit trails. I think of some of the the false teaching that goes on around us. And I think I've only had one really engaging interaction with a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, but I had someone come to my door a couple of years ago, uh, and instantly I, I knew, I knew the distinction. I knew that it's all, it all comes down to the deity of Christ. It's all about the truth that Jesus Christ is God. They don't acknowledge that. So the man started to go down all these rabbit trails about, well, let's you know, talk about this. And I said, no, 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 look, you don't believe that Jesus is God. And let's, let's look at the scripture and see why that is true. And, and you need to affirm that reality. And until you do, I really don't have anything. You don't have anything for me. We're not, we don't have anything to, to dialogue about because you discount the truth that Jesus is God. And again, Paul is saying here, look, don't, don't dignify them by engaging with them on their level. Don't get pulled down on all of their rabbit trails. Don't engage in these word fights. The second description that Paul gives of speech that's not profitable is down in verse 16. He says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Avoid irreverent babble. Uh, the phrase irreverent babble, it means profane or unholy, empty discussion. It's empty. It's, it's a discussion of vain and useless matters. The, the word babble literally means empty sound empty sound. It's as though these guys are talking, nothing is happening. There's nothing of substance, nothing of meaning is coming out of their mouths. This is how Paul describes the message of these false teachers. And Timothy is told specifically to avoid it. Look, just avoid this irreverent babble. Look back at 1 Timothy 4, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7 He gives him a similar charge, again, dealing with these false teachers. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. He says, have nothing to do with it. The speech that's coming out of these false teachers, don't have anything to do with it. Don't engage with them. Just leave them be. Avoid it. Look down at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and down in verse 20, Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There's a little bit of a dig there. Um, on the one hand, I, I think you could see a little bit of a, almost a, like a proto-Gnosticism where you have this, these folks that have this idea that says, well, I've got some secret knowledge, secret revelation from God, and only I have this, and you have to attain to my level to be able to comprehend these deep truths. And Paul's like, yeah, it's falsely called knowledge. It's not really knowledge but it's falsely called that. He says, avoid it. Avoid that irreverent babble and those contradictions. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, avoid this irreverent babble. Avoid these empty discussions. Why? Because it's going to lead people into more and more ungodliness in verse 16. It's going to lead people into more and more ungodliness. And this carries the idea that we recognize that false teaching ultimately leads to ungodly living, right? Doctrine determines behavior. So that if I believe a certain set of things and 
I'm just convinced to my core that these things are true, that's going to determine how I live. So in the context of dealing with folks that are Gnostics, if I think that you know, matter is evil and it's never going to be redeemed, it's never going to be redeemable, I'm just going to live it up and I'm going to do whatever I want to do because it doesn't matter because it's just matter. Hmm. Oh, well, right? Doctrine determines behavior. And in this case, he's saying these folks, they're spewing this irreverent babble and it's leading people into more and more ungodliness. He says also that the speech of those conducting these empty discussions is going to spread like gangrene. You see that in verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, I don't know a lot about gangrene. Frankly, I never want to see or come anywhere near gangrene. But recognize, I mean, gangrene, this is the localized death and decomposition of body tissue. That's a nice clinical definition for us. It's not pretty. Right? It's, it's, it's a flesh-eating disease. It's, it's crawling on me, and, and the further it spreads out, it's eating everything in its path. And there's actually a picture here when he says it's going to spread like gangrene. Uh, the word that we have here, it's going to spread, it literally means it's going to have pasture. You think about you have cows out on a field, right? And they, they gradually spread out, and what are they doing? They're eating grass, eating grass, eating grass. And as they spread, everything in their wake is eaten, and it's just laid bare. And what's happening here, Paul is saying, is look, this false teaching that's coming out of these, these folks, Hymenaeus and Philetus, their talk is going to spread like gangrene. It's going to eat everything in its path, and it's going to kill everything in its path. It's going to spread out and cause only harm. Then he calls out Hymenaeus and Philetus specifically in the second half of verse 17. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. He calls them out as having swerved from the truth. They've deviated from the truth. They've missed the mark of the truth by saying that the resurrection has already happened. They have what we would call an over-realized eschatology, an over-realized eschatology. They're saying, okay, all the stuff that we think about happening at the end, well, that's already happened in a spiritual sense. Yeah, that, that's, that's the ticket. Yeah, that's it, right? So he's saying that these folks are saying the resurrection has already happened. They're saying there is no bodily resurrection. There is not going to be a final resurrection of the dead. And we recognize from 1 Corinthians 15 that if you deny the resurrection in general, then Christ has not risen, right? That's Paul's logic that he uses in 1 Corinthians 15 is to say, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not risen, and your faith is in vain. It's futile, So the significance here of these folks denying the resurrection is not a light issue. They deny the resurrection, which ultimately impacts the resurrection of Jesus. Their speech, he says, is upsetting the faith of some. Now, this isn't not saying their feelings are hurt and I'm upset or I'm annoyed. No, it's literally they're being upended. It's actually the same word that's used to describe Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers back in John chapter 2 right? These folks, they are turning over the faith of some. They're just upending them, and they're leaving them in chaos. It's upsetting the faith of some. And Paul's charge to Timothy says, look, don't get, don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught up in the empty speech of these false teachers. Avoid their irreverent babble. The, the third category that Paul talks about is down in verse 23. 2 Timothy 2.23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. Uh, Literally, moronic, uneducated debates. These false teachers love to engage 
in debates. They love to be able to present their teaching and, and to, again, fight over it, to squabble over it. Uh, turn back to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3. Paul says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They have an unhealthy craving for controversies. They love it. They love it. They want to just get somebody hooked into a debate, and they want to just fight with them over the the smallest thing. They want to get involved in these ignorant controversies. And Paul's charge to Timothy is, look, don't allow yourself to be drawn in, because these debates, they breed quarrels. They, They literally give birth to fights. And he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but rather needs to be characterized by kindness and gentleness. Now, as I was thinking about this third area that Paul's dealing with, foolish and ignorant controversies, uh, instantly, the first thing that came to mind, social media. Any active social media people out there? Right. Now, I like debates, like formal debates. I like to see the exchange of ideas. I like to see people uh, present their best case and do what they can. Uh, I love politics. I love political debates, much to the chagrin of my wife. Uh, but I love these things. And yet, how many of us, you look at social media, you look at Twitter, you look at Facebook, just reading an article on a news site, you always look down to the comments, right? That's where the action really happens is down in the comments. And you see there, somebody will say, oh, well, ba 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 And then somebody else responds, ba 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 Oh, yeah, well, ba 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 Oh, yeah, ba 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 And they just go back and forth and bicker with one another. And how many times have we seen that where you have people that are believers, believers, talking to other believers in such a way that it becomes just this mudslinging and these ad hominems and like, well, you're a blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, well, you're a, oh, really Christ-like of you. I mean, the sarcasm is just, it's dripping. This is an area where we have very, very practical opportunity for application, not to engage in these foolish, ignorant controversies, these moronic, uneducated debates, but rather we're to show kindness, and gentleness. And actually, Paul deals with this at the end. He says in verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So there's still correction that goes on, but it's not in a, matter of, in a manner rather of engaging in debates. It's not as though I am, uh, I'm, out, I'm out to win. I'm just going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. Sorry. <laughs> Donald Trump thought came into mind. There's so much winning, we're going to get tired of winning. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist. By God's Spirit, we cannot allow ourselves to be drawn into these foolish debates. We need to avoid speech that is unprofitable. We need to avoid those things that ultimately hurt our testimony to the unbelieving world around us and are not building up other believers. So a useful servant of God avoids unprofitable speech. The second practice that Paul outlines for Timothy here is something that will enable him to continue to be useful is this. He says, a useful servant handles God's word with accuracy. A useful servant handles God's word with accuracy. Look back at verse 15. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling 
the word of truth. I'm not a big fan of the way the ESV renders this. Um, Do your best sounds just a little weak. Uh, It's sort of like, well, hey, try your hardest, and if you miss, oh well. Um, It's actually the same word that's used, you don't have to turn there, but at the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, Paul's in prison, and he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me. And then a little bit later in chapter 4, he says, do your best to come before winter. Paul isn't saying, hey, Timothy, give it a shot, try it, try your hardest, and "Hmm, oh well. No, he's like, Timothy, you need to be diligent. You need to apply eager diligence to come to me before winter. Paul is in a desperate condition, and he needs Timothy to come to be with him. And and he says the same thing here. He says, be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. Timothy is to apply eager diligence in order to present himself to God as one who has been approved, one who has been tried and found to have passed the test. How is he to do that? He says, by continually handling the word of truth with accuracy. Continually handling the word of truth with accuracy. Uh, The phrase here, rightly handling the word of truth, uh, literally means cutting it straight. Now, it doesn't mean like slicing and dicing, cutting it straight, but in the sense of cutting straight furrows in a field for planting, right? You're you're putting seed down, you want straight furrows in the ground. Or if I'm a a worker and I'm I'm about to create a road, I'm cutting a straight road through a forest, right? I'm, I'm, I'm tearing down the things that are in the way, and I'm cutting a straight road and laying something straight. This is how Timothy is to be handling the word of truth. The false teachers, they've twisted God's word. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1. The false teachers have twisted God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He says, look, these guys want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. And and so he says here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you're in the midst of these false teachers, Timothy, and they don't know what they're talking about. They're making confident assertions about which they know nothing. And the way to combat that is to constantly present the word of truth with clarity and with accuracy, and then simply to allow that word to do its work in their lives. We know that God's word works. Uh, Back in 2 Timothy, look over at chapter 3, a familiar text, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He says all Scripture, this is God-breathed, and it's profitable, it's beneficial for teaching, for, for reproof, for pointing out things that are wrong in, in others' doctrine and others' teaching, correcting, right, saying to these false teachers, look, what you're saying is wrong. Here's the truth of God's word. Let, let's restore. Let's bring this back. And for training in righteousness, God's word is profitable to accomplish these things. Uh, turn back to Psalm 19, if you would. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of what is found in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, where God's word says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. God's Word is what works in the human heart. Here in Psalm 19, we want to begin reading in verse 7. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. We see God's word works. It makes wise the simple. It revives the soul. It causes us to rejoice in our hearts, and it enlightens the eyes. It gives light to our eyes that we can see the truth, of, the truth of God's Word, the truth of who God is, the truth of our nature, we can see things for what they are because God, God's Word enlightens our eyes. God has ordained His Word as the means of effecting change in the human heart. So it's vitally important that we present that Word to those around us with accuracy. We need to present God's Word with accuracy. How do we do that? First, we need to read God's Word, right? It's pretty difficult to be able to communicate something that you don't know what it says, right? We need to read, and whether it's actually physically opening a book and reading, whether it's listening, uh, we have so many uh, opportunities in our current day and age with technology and whatnot. There's so many avenues for us to, to take in the Word of God. We need to read it. Not only, though, do we need to read it, we need to study it. It, it can't just be a cursory glance at, at the Scripture and then, okay, I've checked my box for the day and I'm, I'm off and doing my own thing now. No, we need to get into what God has said and, and understand what something is saying, but then we also need to synthesize it, meaning we need to look at all the other parts of God's Word and see how they all fit together, to see how this part that I'm reading in 2 Timothy ties back to 1 Timothy. And how does that relate to the gospel overall? We need to look at everything and see how everything fits together. But we also need to learn in community. We need to learn in community. And this, this is important because a lot of times we can envision, you know, I've got my thing going, right? I'm, I'm sitting under a tree and I'm reading God's word and, and you know, God's spirit works in my heart and, and, and illumines my mind to understand his word. Yes, that's absolutely true. God works in the individual believer by the power of his spirit to illumine the mind and help us to understand. But we need to recognize that God has also given us a local church where we have pastors and teachers to, to instruct and to provide guidance. He's also given us just other fellow believers, folks that aren't necessarily serving in a formal teaching capacity, but these are folks that God has worked in them through His Word. He's revealed things by His Spirit in, in their lives, and they have opportunity to share these things. Not only this, not only just the present local church, but we need to recognize we're not the first generation with God's Word. Did you know that the church, New Testament church, has been around for 2,000 years? <laughs> Mind-blowing. And the idea there is that we have folks throughout the history of the church that have looked at the Scripture, that have studied the same things that we're studying, and they might know a little bit, right? We might be able to, to benefit from uh, the, the insight of those that have gone before us. All this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. As He illumines our mind and He enables us to understand His Word, we can then turn around and present that Word to others with accuracy and with clarity. So back in 2 Timothy 2, Paul's charged him, look, Timothy, you need to be a useful servant. You need to be one who is presenting God's Word and handling it with accuracy. You need to deal, be precise with God's Word. You also need to avoid 
unprofitable speech. The third practice that Paul outlines for Timothy in order for him to be useful is to flee unrighteousness. He says a useful servant flees unrighteousness. And we see that uh, starting actually in the, starting verse 16. In verse 16, he says, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So these false teachers, they've had a corrupting influence in the church there at Ephesus. They've had this influence where they're leading people into ungodliness. And although the faith of some has been upended, has been overthrown, they've upsetting the faith of some, Timothy is reminded that God's church still stands on a solid foundation. It will not be upended. You see in verse 19, the tail end of verse 18, he says, they are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God's firm foundation stands, and it has this, this twofold seal or inscription that you think of a, of a building when it's laid. Uh, we don't do this so much anymore, but historically, if you go like downtown Providence, for example, you'll see uh, maybe in a cornerstone or somewhere there's a plaque. And it'll say, you know, this building erected in whatever, 18 and such and such. We actually have one uh, when we did the stonework at the front of the church here. Uh, there's a cornerstone church established, you know, 1930-something, 36? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, established 1936, right? It'll say, you know, the, the, the nature of the building, the purpose of the building, and that's what's happening here. Paul is talking about this seal that's on this solid foundation, this inscription that's there, and, and it, 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 there's two parts to it. The first is... God knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. He has chosen a specific people. He regenerates that people, and he will preserve that people. God knows his people. He knows his people intimately. But we don't always do that. We don't have God's knowledge, right? We don't have that level of understanding that the Lord does. We don't. So, The flip side of that coin is, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. From a human perspective, the means of recognizing who belongs to God is by looking for evidence of change, looking for a changed life. Those whom God has saved will put that change on display by being in the practice of departing from iniquity. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Or as Martin Luther once said, the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. The entire life of believers should be one of repentance. There's a continual departure from sin as we become aware of it in our lives. Paul then illustrates this point. He goes on to describe the vessels or utensils in a great house. He says in verse 20, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He says in a great house, there's two categories of vessels, two categories of implements that are used. There's those that are of wood and clay. These are for dishonorable use. Use your imagination. I'm not going to go there. We're talking about things like chamber pots and bedpans, and garbage troughs, right? Uh, we're dealing in an, in, a, in an era where you don't have plumbing. Uh, so, and that's that, right? You have vessels that are set apart for this purpose. You're not going to use those vessels to say, here, let's come to the table. I clean this out. It's, let's put the soup in this, right? 
We're not going to do that. But he says there's also vessels of gold and silver. These are things that are for honorable use. These are the, the goblets, the fine gold, the platters, the silverware. These are the fine things that are used. These are the good dishes, right? You have the, your good dishes in the cabinet. They only get used like once a year, if ever. Uh, and they come out and you present them before your honorable guests. He says there are vessels of wood and clay. These are things for dishonorable use. There are vessels of gold and silver. Those are for honorable use. And Paul says by cleansing himself from what is dishonorable... He will be for honorable use. You see that at the tail end of verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. He'll be set apart as holy. He'll be useful to the master, useful to the master, and he's going to be ready for every good work. So you see there's this departure from things that are unclean, a departure from iniquity, a departure from unrighteousness. And by doing that, he's going to be in a place where he's useful to the master. He's going to be ready for every good work. So in light of all this, Paul sums it up in verse 22 by charging him to flee youthful passions. He says, so flee youthful passions. It's a very clear-cut, straightforward command. These passions could be any sort of strong desire. In the context, you know, we think of youthful passions and we normally, our mind tends to think of like sexual sins, right? Things of that nature. Um, in the context, he's more likely referring to just the youthful desire to win arguments with the false teachers, to be right, the, the desire to constantly be right. Nobody's going to take me down. I'm right all the time. That's it, right? That's a, a youthful desire. And as we get older, we recognize, you know what? I'm not right all the time. Uh, but a youthful passion is to say, you know what, no, I, I'm going to be right, and I'm going to prove my point. I'm going to win, win, win. And that's what he says here. He says, flee those youthful passions. The idea to flee is to shun something or to avoid something by means of flight, by running away. Uh, we don't have to turn there, but in, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul instructs the church at Corinth to flee from sexual immorality, to just run away from it, flee from sexual immorality. It's illustrated nicely for us by Joseph, where you think back in Genesis chapter 39, right? He runs away from Potiphar's wife. She's there just tempting him, tempting him, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. And he just, he books it. He's out of there. He flees that situation. He's fleeing sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul instructs the church at Corinth to flee from idolatry, to run away from anything that uh, would serve as an idol, anything that we would worship in place or alongside God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And in the context, he's talking about the love of money, the love of material goods, materialism. He says, flee from this, run away from this, don't have anything to do with this. Regardless of the sin, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's idolatry, the love of money, or, or the love of winning arguments, by God's grace, we need to repent of it, we need to depart from it, and we need to run away from it. Sin is not something to be played with. It is not something for us to, to coddle and, and just sort of pet and say, this is my little pet sin. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this. This is not something for us to be playing with. We need to flee from it. And that's Paul's charge to Timothy. He says, look, Timothy, if you want to be a useful vessel, you need to cleanse yourself. You need to re be removed from those things that have a tarnishing effect. But then the flip side of that is the last aspect of being a useful servant, and that's found in the second half of verse 22. He says, Play youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We see here a useful servant pursues godliness. 
pursues godliness. Not only is there to be a putting off, a fleeing, a departure, but a useful servant also pursues certain qualities. Uh, We see first is righteousness. Uh, William Hendrickson defines this as being integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Righteousness. He says, pursue practical righteousness. He says also pursue faith, which is a humble and a dynamic confidence in God. The word can also be rendered faithfulness, right? Pursue faithfulness, pursue personal fidelity, reliability, trustworthiness, pursue these things. He says pursue love, which is a deep personal affection for the body, for the brothers, and also including in your benevolent interests even the enemies, even the enemies. He says love those that are around you, you also to love your enemies, Jesus told us. So he says, pursue love. And lastly, he says, to pursue peace, undisturbed, perfect understanding, peace. He gives almost an identical list of instructions at the end of First Timothy in chapter 6. Let's turn there real quick here. First Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith love, steadfastness, gentleness. He says, pursue these things. Now, between these two lists, right, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, and then the list in 2 Timothy 2, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Do you recognize any of these? Have you seen these in a list somewhere else? (laughs) Right, Galatians 5, right? These are the fruit of God's Spirit. This is something that God is producing in the believer. God is producing in Timothy, and he's producing in us as we submit to his spirit. As we walk in the spirit, these fruits are going to be evident. These fruits are going to be manifest in our lives. And this is what Paul is is charging Timothy. He says, look, pursue these things. And And the avenue of pursuit is simply submitting to the spirit of God. This pursuit is to be an ongoing pursuit. It's listed for us in 2 Timothy 2 as a, as a present tense. It's something that you need to be doing it now, and you need to continue doing it into the future. Do it again and again and again. Ongoing, continually pursue opportunities to, for greater dependence on the Spirit of God to produce these qualities. It's also to be a dogged pursuit. This is a, a tenacious pursuit. It's actually, the, the word pursue here is the same word that's used in the book of Acts to describe Saul's persecution of the church that he's chasing them, chasing them, hunting them down, grabbing them, throwing them into prison. He's doing this. The church is being chased. The church is being pursued. And this is the same sense that we have here. Pursue these qualities. Timothy, and by way of application, the church at large. Pursue these things in a dogged way. But it's also to be a communal pursuit. Again, we get back to this aspect of community. At the end of this list, he says, you're pursuing these things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You're pursuing these things not by yourself. You're not acting as a lone ranger Christian. You're not saying, okay, I'm running and I'm running hard. I'm doing my thing. No, we're to be doing this in community. This is something for the the church to be doing at large. Paul instructs Timothy to do it uh, in the context of that church in Ephesus. And by, again, by way of extension, we ourselves need to be doing that as well. We need to be pursuing these things in community. So we've seen, we've looked at uh, the useful vessel avoiding or useful servant, rather, avoiding unprofitable speech. A servant that's useful handles God's word with accuracy and clarity. 
A servant that's useful rejects, casts off, flees from unrighteousness. And a servant that's useful pursues godliness. If we want to be useful to the master, and I believe we do, right? Every believer in this room, it's, it's in us. God has put it in us that we want. We have a desire to be useful to the king. If we want to be useful, we need to be doing these things. We need to avoid unprofitable speech. That means the next time you log on to Facebook, think twice before you start engaging in that debate. We need to handle God's word with accuracy. We need to get in the word. We need to be people of the word, that we, we're, just, we're constantly feasting on what God has given to us in his word. We need to be people of the word. We need to flee unrighteousness. We need to put these things off and, by God's grace, run away from them. And we need to be pursuing godliness constantly, doggedly. We need to pursue these things. But if we stopped there, if we just left it there and say, okay, go and do it, we would all be crushed under the weight of these requirements that we cannot meet on our own. We cannot do these things at our own strength. All that would happen is we would go away, we'd probably have success for about five minutes, or dangerously, if we got success longer than that on our own, right? And we'd come away saying, oh, I can do this. This is easy. I can do this. This is great. No. How could Timothy do these things? How can we do these things? The key is actually found back in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2, where Paul writes, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As we look to God for his grace, as we cry out to him for his help, he will strengthen us so that we avoid unprofitable speech. He will enable us to accurately understand and to clearly communicate his word. He will empower us to flee from unrighteousness, to run away, to avoid these things that are not helpful. And he will sustain us in our continual pursuit of godliness. As we look to him in dependence, he is the one who will make us servants who are fit for his use. Let's ask God for his help to do just that in our lives. Let's pray together.